All right, so as we come to chapter 17 in 2 Kings, we've come to the end of the road. <laughs> that is, the end of the journey for the northern kingdoms, right? The northern kingdom of Israel, they've been a separate kingdom. After King Solomon died in 931 B.C., the kingdom of Israel was divided in two, and uh, Jeroboam was the servant of Solomon. He ended up in the north, and he began that first dynasty of the northern kings, and then uh, Rehoboam, the son of J- Solomon, was in the south of the kings of Judah. And so for about 200 years, they've been running parallel. And all these people like Elijah and Elisha have come and gone. The kings like Jehoshaphat and others. Uh, Omri, they've all, Ahab, Jezebel, they've, they've come and gone. And now as we get to pick up the text tonight, we really go forward. And we, what we come to tonight in chapter 17 is the end of the northern kingdom. The end of that kingdom of the north. All those different, 19 different kings, about 200 years, and never did one of them choose to walk with the Lord and do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So tonight we begin by wrapping them up with how they end up just dispersed in captivities in various places. And then we get to uh, Hezekiah in the next chapter tonight. So I have two chapters, and we pick it up now in chapter 17 in the accumulation of these northern kings and what happened in the northern kingdom. In the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Eliah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Shalomansar, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute money. And the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year, Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up, bound him, in, and bound him in prison. Now, the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. And in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria, carried away Israel to, captive to Assyria, and placed them in Halon and by Habor, the river of Gozon, and the city of the Medes. So that's Iran. These northern tribes, what was left of them, they'd been taken apart piece by piece prior to this, but now what's left, their little 30 by 40 mile stretch of the remnant of the northern tribes, those 10 northern tribes, this is it. Assyria was a much more powerful kingdom than the ones they had faced previously. They had faced, you know, they fought the Philistines, they would fought Syrians, they would fought Moabites, and even during the time of Judges, Midianites, and all these other people, Edomites to the south, even the Ethiopians, but the Assyrian Empire is one of those great world empires. Like, they ruled the world, and they were a ruthless people. So you get that sequence where you go Assyrians, and then you'll get the Babylonians, and then you get the Greeks, and then you get the subdivision of Alexander the Great's kingdom and the Seleucid Empire over Israel, one of the four generals of, king, of Alexander the Great, and then Rome arises. So the Assyrians were like a superpower, and they were ruthless, and they conquered people, and they showed no mercy. They're not... Dealing with, in other words, for the northern kingdom, dealing with the Assyrians is not dealing like with the Philistines who are just your neighbors and kind of an equal foe for a lot of different things and the ebb and flow of how you get along with your ethnic neighbors, whatever, in that timeline. These are, these are, this is a superpower, and they weren't messing around. And so we read here this last of the 19 kings of the north, Hosea. He's not as bad as the other kings. It's amazing. They had all those bad kings, but the least of the bad kings is the last king, which isn't saying much. He's still a bad king. And this new Assyrian king, Shalamanser, came into power, and he conquered him, and he made him pay tribute and taxes, and he did all that. 
And so this worked for a season. And then Hosea got this idea that he could work a broker a different deal with So the king of Egypt. And this was undoing because when he did this deal, So wasn't able to deliver him from Assyria. And he still got whipped by the Assyrians. He was bound and ended his life in prison, taken away to captivity. We don't hear from him again. And then the king of Assyria besieged Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, for three years, was successful in that siege, defeated them, destroyed them. And what was the, the true nature of Assyrians, they stripped you naked, they put fish hooks in your ears, they linked you with a rope, and they hauled you off into captivity. So... Also, on record from the Assyrian tablets, we have historical archaeological records apart from the Bible that one of the kings brags, one of the Assyrian kings talks about taking 30,000, it's actually like 28,700, whatever, Israelite captives uh, naked and hooked together into captivity, never be heard from again. So we need to understand, like, I don't know, there's something in us we don't like to be naked. It goes back to the original sin, I believe. So, and that's when you're really conquered, when they just strip you down. And they put the fish hook in your ears, and you're a slave, and off you go. And that's what happened to them. That is the end of the ten tribes, and this is how it happened. Now, when we think about the ten tribes, they never really show up again. It's not like you see, hey, they come back, and they re-inhabit these areas, that type of thing. It doesn't happen. With these northern tribes, they, they never came back. That was it. But we do know from extra-biblical writings, and like Josephus and the Jewish historian and others, that some of the other tribes would have stayed in Judah, or they would have migrated to Judah during the time of the different kings. So when we think about Israel right now being the Israelites, true Israelites being in Israel right now, or around planet Earth, there are clearly, you know, Jewish ethnic people of the 12 tribes on planet Earth right now in 2023, though these were scattered. We never saw them brought together with their tribal regional identities that they had when Joshua divided the land back in the book of Joshua and we read about in the book of Judges as well. So this is, this is their end. In fact, this chapter can be divided this way. It can be removal, the reason for the removal, and the replacements. That's what happens in chapter 17. They're removed. Then we're going to get the reason for the removal. We just read the removal. We're going to get the reasons for it, and then we get the replacements. But something that gets my attention here before we move on, just a quick application on Hosea. You know, we, we talk about this stuff like compound decisions, like the more good decisions you make, the better it's going to be for you. Like if your life becomes a pattern of good decisions, that's kind of your fruit, and they build on one another, and they get better for you, and you make a series of, you know, say in your 20s, you give your life to the Lord, early 20s, and you're walking with the Lord, and you're trying to please the Lord. Well, as you go forward, you just get this compound improvement of, of just almost like equity and interest of good decisions. So the more good ones you make, the more they work together for good in your life and you chart the right course. And it's the same with bad decisions. So the more bad decisions you make and you keep making them, the more likely you'll make bad ones and then you reap the compound elements of it. And I was thinking about Hosea here, this last of 19 kings of Israel. He's the, he's the final accumulation of bad decisions of 20 years, excuse me, 200 years of bad kings. And like, in a practical sense, Let's think this through, because I like to be in front of things, and so do you. I don't, like to, I don't like to be the, I like to be proactive. Like, on a road trip, I like to pick my exit with, you know, the Starbucks and the Holiday Inn Express and, you know, a nice clean Chevron, all the amenities I like. I don't want to get off an XYZ exit on the way to Vegas and not have anything there and run out of gas. That's a bad exit, right? So I like to be in front of things, and when you make decisions, financial decisions, spiritual decisions, relationship decisions... It's good to kind of think it through and sort of see where it can go and reverse engineer it. Like say, okay, we, 
you know, if I go to Grand Canyon University for four years, it'll look like this. If I go to Long Beach State, it looks like that. And you think these things through. So for me with Hosea that jumps out at me is this guy just made this decision like, before you decide to take on, before you quit paying tribute to the king of Assyria, you should make sure the king of Egypt's got your back. Because he's already, he's made all kinds of bad decisions, but this is the worst decision he ever made. Of all of his bad decisions, the worst decision he ever made was not to pay tribute to the king of Assyria. Because even though it was, a, it was a bad situation, it was the best function of a bad situation. But the moment he didn't pay that tribute, now Hezekiah is going to be in the same boat, so he's going to be a contrast before we're done tonight. And that's why I'm using Hosea first, because Hezekiah is a contrast in the south with the same situation. And I'll show you the difference. So he makes this decision. It's the worst decision. And he trusted, instead of trusting the Lord, he trusted in so the king of Egypt. That would have been the right decision to trust in the Lord. And then in the end, it all comes back on him. It all just comes down on him. Because in the end, he cast his lot with the king of Egypt. It didn't work. It's like he put all of his wealth, if you will, his whole life equity, everything he was with this king of Egypt, said of the Lord with the king of Egypt, or instead of just not upsetting his master, the king of Assyria, and he's hauled off to prison and he had the rest of his life, however long he lived, to think about, why did I make that investment? Why did I make the decision? And we talk about beneficial knowledge. You know, the book of Proverbs is knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Knowledge is the facts. Understanding is what they mean. And wisdom is making the right decision. And I'm just thinking his wife should have told him at night one night, hey, honey, are you sure about this shift in our policy going to Egypt? Because this, this doesn't look good to me on paper. This is like a really bad decision. What if the Assyrian king gets really mad and the king of Egypt doesn't come through and all we put, all we've leveraged everything that we are in our future with this guy and doesn't work and then we're hung out to dry with this guy. Oh, honey, I got this covered. I know what I'm doing. I'm the king. Don't talk back to me at dinner. And look what happened. I don't know. I, I just, I'm always looking for application for me and I just think this reminds me, this story tells me, hey, before you really upset your boss that you don't like, Make sure you have another boss that, you'll, that has a job for you. You know, before you quit this job, just don't do that in haste. As a, fa- as a matter of fact, when I surfed for Hang 10 in the surf industry, they cut my salary in half. I had a two-year contract. In the second year, they came back and cut my salary in half. And I had so much fun. I'm like, no one cuts my salary in half. They thought I'd go for it. And I didn't. I didn't. I walked. But it was a lose-lose, because after I quit Hang 10, I found out that no one in the surf industry would pay me what was half of what Hang 10 paid me. No one would pay me half. If I'd stayed with Hang 10, I would have more money than what anyone else was willing to pay me. So my pride and my lack of vision and foresight totally cost me at the peak of my career in 1982. That's a life lesson from that. Before you really upset the boss you don't like, and you quit in a rage, just make sure you got another job, huh? Because you just don't know when they're going to put a hook in your nose and strip you down naked and haul you off somewhere else and take you to prison. You just never know. Okay, now we read on. So that's it. They're, they're removed. They're out. That's the end of 200 years. Now, we'll, we'll cover more of it in this chapter, but that's, that's it. The Assyrians can't. They're not, the Assyrians are they're not politically correct. They're not messing around. They are, they take, they're takers, and they took everything they wanted for a couple hundred years. Now, verse 7, we pick it up. This is why they were removed. So now this is like a court of law, and this is the indictment. We know this from going through the first Kings and second Kings, but this is like a court, you know, when, the, when the, someone's just reading the record of what the charges are. And for verse 7, For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
And they had feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and the kings of Israel, which they had made. Also, the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. And they built for themselves high places in all their cities, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. There they burned incense on all the high places, like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger, for they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet, verse 13, the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all of his prophets, every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I have commanded your fathers, which I have sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God, and they rejected his statutes and his covenants which he had made with their fathers and his testimonies which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were around them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. And follow them. Verse 16. So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a, a molded image and two calves, made a wooden image and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. Which means, you know, Baal is Lord and Baal is Lord of anything you think rules over your life. So that's how Baal worked. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, emphasized, practiced witchcraft and soothsaying, sorcery, demonic realm, sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Verse 18, therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. That's our southern kingdom. Also, though, verse 19, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel, which they made. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them, and delivered them into the hand of the plunderers, until he cast them from his sight. For he tore Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Remember, he's that first king of the north that I was talking about earlier. 200 years prior. Then Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord. He was the beginning of all the bad stuff. And made them commit great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all of his servants of the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is to this day. So we get them removed, and this is the reason why. There's a few words that you know, if you go through this and you highlight or circle some words, right away, verse 7 says they sinned. And, you know, sin is, oh, that's the macro. Sin is rebellion against God. It's to miss the mark. And everything else comes under it, right? And we know with temptation, it's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. All sin falls in those three categories in our fallen nature before the Lord. And they sinned individually and collectively as a nation. And their leaders, leading by poor example, sinned. And as we saw with Jeroboam, stumbled the people in that sin it was on everyone when they got hauled away it was on everyone there was guilt for everyone so they sinned they walked in the statues of the nations they did secret evil things in darkness as if they got away from it they did exactly what the nations did that were expelled by the lord the canaanites they did wicked things they did not turn from their wicked ways they stiffened their necks they did not believe they didn't they're they're people of covenant without faith with god that's the worst They rejected his statutes. They refused to have God's word govern them. They left all the commandments of the Lord. They wanted nothing to do with the the beauty of the Ten Commandments and their blessing upon their personal life, their mind, spirit, soul, and body, upon their marriage, upon their children. They had none of it. 
They went after idols. They caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire. So again, emphasize sorcery, sold themselves to do evil. They were just, that, that idea too of sold themselves to do evil, they were passionate for evil. They're just given over to it. And that's what they did. They sold themselves to do evil. And they didn't, they didn't, they just, they, that was it. There was none left. They were gone. And then we get an early indictment against Judah in verse 19, connecting that. But it all goes back to Jeroboam, that he was the first, and that's the way it went, and they were all gone. And here's something to think about. The wrath of God and the mercy of God. The wrath of God's been revealed to all the world. The wrath of God is seen in the judgment of, like, Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood, Jesus on the cross. That's the wrath of God. All sin has to be dealt with. But the mercy of God is shown through the cross as well and through Jesus, and mercy is extended to us. And we know that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but they would turn from their sins. And we know that, that it's God's will that none should perish and that he's long-suffering. And thus the Lord has not returned yet because he's long-suffering. But these verses make clear to us there is an end to... There's a place where mercy no longer exists and only wrath exists. And that's what happened here. And it's very sobering and we could say that there was no hope for these people. They, they had 200 years to turn it around. They had 19 kings, and they never turned it around. They just... And why some Judah kings turned it around and none in the north did, I don't completely know. We've seen time and time again that these different kings of the north, even like Ahab, God gave them opportunity. Hey, they're coming back. Think about what you're going to do and think about... like. And even when they made one good decision, when Ahab made one good decision, he found mercy and he found a promising word. It was there for them, but they just wouldn't, they wouldn't receive it. And they were, they were removed, and this is the reason. And I would just say, I don't want to be removed. I don't want you removed, and I don't even want to know any reasons. So we just stay away from things that are contrary to whatever is true, just, noble, and praiseworthy of the Lord, because in the end, it has nothing to do with God's character it has nothing to do with his favorable work on planet Earth and time, space, and matter. And it most definitely has nothing to do with eternity and his glorious kingdom. And to that we say yes and amen. They did it to themselves. And I must say in 35 years of ministry, I've watched a lot of people do it to themselves. We, we just There comes a point where the, the mercy, you've crossed the line, they crossed the line, and there was no coming back. No repentance with the fish hook in your nose and stripped down naked headed for Iran was going to restore your vineyards, your house, your marriage, or your kids to you. There's no, that line was crossed. Verse 24. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And this was one of their practices, to, to relocate people and get them out of a comfort zone. So it would discourage rebellion and encourage loyalty to their new masters. And so they did this, and, and they, they took them, they put the people in Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. So these displaced people that Assyria had displaced from other places and put them in the northern kingdom, they didn't, they didn't fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the wild beasts had a free reign because there was no restraint with the depopulation is practical reason, but even so, it could be supernatural as well. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you've removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them. Indeed, they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. 
Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from here, from there. This is an unknown priest. We never know his name. And let him go and dwell there and let him teach them in the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Okay, that's a good start right there for these new people. These are not Jewish people. These are people occupying now this territory. Verse 29, however, every nation continued to make gods of its own, put them in the shrines on the high places, which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they were dwelt. The men of Babylon made Succoth, Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tarkuk, and the Sephravites burned their children to fire to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Sephravim. So they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet served their gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. So I think we can relate to this. When they say they feared the Lord, it's kind of like you don't want the Lord to strike you, but you don't want to serve the Lord either. It's kind of like when, you know, even the, even the most hardened criminals, when it's all going bad, they're like, Santa Maria, you know, Hail Mary or something. You know, it's that idea that, that sort of superstitious idea that you don't, you know, you can do what you want to do, but you're really hoping that, like, God doesn't get you for your evil. That's pretty much what it implies. They're doing, they're doing what they want to do, these, just these new people that are there, and they know enough about the Lord that they should fear him and roaring, you know, roaming lions, like, that's pretty terrifying come eye to eye, like, I just see a coyote in my neighborhood, and I'm, like, nervous about that. Last thing I wanted to see a lion, because, you know, we're new to the area, and, like, that's a, that's a scary thing, and so they were given a chance to believe the truth, presumably, that this priest told them the things of the Lord from the law of the Lord, but they weren't willing to obey either. Verse 34, so to this day, they continue practicing former rituals, they do not fear the Lord in the sense like we would, like Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord's beginning of wisdom, nor do they follow the statutes or the ordinance of the law, the command which the Lord has commanded the children of Israel, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, you shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice them, but the Lord, who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and outstretched arm, him you shall fear, him you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifice. So they were given that chance. Verse 37, and the statutes and the ordinances of the law and the commandments which we wrote to you, you shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you serve other gods. So that's a reaffirmation of the covenant God made with Israel and those principles being applied to them. Verse 39, but the Lord your God you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. However, they did not obey, but they followed their own rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, like we said in that superstitious sense, yet they serve their carved images. Also, their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. Oh, that last verse. They serve these carved images also as their children and their children's children have continued to do this day. What a contrast to those wonderful verses in the Bible that talk about one generation shall proclaim your praises to another generation. And we read in Proverbs, a righteous man leaves inheritance to his children's children. And the ultimate inheritance that a righteous man can leave is faith because everything else gets left behind and its purpose is to bring people to faith. That's what real earthly wealth is to meet our temporal needs, but ultimately earthly wealth is to advance the kingdom. That's the great commission and to bring people to faith. 
And so I couldn't help but think when I read this how tragic it is when we watch generation, when people, a family, it's a, it's a generation of, you know, alcoholics or drug addicts and criminals, and you just can perpetuate that. And you, dysfunction breeds dysfunction until you bring in Christ and you get new creation and you get healthy function, and then you break the cycle. And it's like, it's, it's hard, it's so sad to watch kids further the sins of their parents and even their grandparents. It's a hard thing to watch. But what's a good thing to watch is when we watch our kids grow up, have been raised in the Lord, and, you know, they're adults, so they make their own decisions. We, most of you are old enough to know that, that, you know, they make their own decisions. But when you love the Lord and you serve the Lord and you're sincere, and the, and the vast majority of what they saw in their house for 20 years or 18 years was a good witness, and, and it wasn't religious, it wasn't hypocritical, it was relationship it was sincere it was faith it was obedience and you're giving your kids that that's that's like salt in the mouth of the horse for water right like it 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 makes it makes them want to go after those good things when they've tasted and seen that the lord is good in your household then that stirs them up to make those decisions and even if you have adult kids that aren't walking with the lord you walking with the lord still influences them and stirs them up to make good decisions and you bring blessing on them and then ideally you get to see your grandkids walk with the lord during Christmas time, I saw a photo of Mike and Sandy Oshner, their great grandparents of some of the Gallagher's in the Florida, you know, my, the Florida family link that we have back there in Vero Beach. And if Nate and Hannah had children, they would be, uh, they're Nate's, it's Nate's grandparents. So Nate and Hannah, my daughter Hannah has children with Nate. Those would be great grandchildren for Mike and Sandy. But Mike and Sandy love the Lord and they've served the Lord for decades and they're beautiful people. And there they are in their upper 70s with surrounded by like the, the, the great grandkids. And it's just a beautiful photo they sent out at Christmas time. I go, this, this is what God wants. Your children's children and walking in the praise of the Lord. And even not so just your children's children, but your children's children's children. Right? Because with the Lord, you have three generations, but you also have four. You have four. And if you... If you honor your parents, that may be well with you. That's that promise where you, like, you live a rich, full life. And if you honor your parents, you get to see maybe your kids honor you too. I just look at these people like so many people don't really ever live and know the joy of living. They have children and they have children's children. And they're, they, they know about pseudo-education or maybe real education. But without the Lord, what education is that? And then, and then they know like sports and all these things. But they don't know the joy of their children, adult children walking with the Lord or, or having raised them in the Lord. And they don't know the joy of seeing their grandkids drawn toward the Lord and even their great-grandkids. This is just, it's just so two-dimensional. When the Lord's over your marriage and the Lord's over your children and the Lord's over your children's children, it's multidimensional because Christ gives us abundant life and he gives us eternal life now. And eternal life is here and now. Christ in me, in you, the hope of glory. So my marriage is eternal, even though we're not married in heaven. My marriage is eternal life right now. My children are eternal life right now. My children's children. It's all multicolor and multidimensional when you're walking with the Lord. And I feel so sorry for people that they just, they go from spouse to spouse, kids from here, kids there, child payments there, family court here, this dispute, that dispute, and another generation. It's just, it's just so sad. This is a sad ending for verse 17. It's a sad chapter. It's a sad ending, not even for Israel. These are people that were put in the place where Israel was and given the same chance as Israel, but they didn't go for it. Now, we come to chapter 18, and we get some really good stuff here. We get Hezekiah. 
It's a beautiful chapter. Hezekiah is going to be our next three chapters in 2 Kings. And then we get Josiah. And we get Manasseh and Josiah between them. Uh, Manasseh between Hezekiah and Josiah. But we get Hezekiah now. So that focus, that's the everything we've been reading. That's accumulation since Solomon stepped into eternity. This is a, it just ended for the northern kingdom. And now the shift is to Judah. So 722 was the, the fullness of the Assyrian captivity. 722 B.C. is the captivity, the end of the ten tribes in the north. 586 B.C. is when the southern kingdom was taken away into Babylon, but 70 years later, they came back. And one final thought about these people that were displaced and put there in their place, that's really the beginning of the Samaritans, right? I mean, that's the whole Samaritan religion, Samaritan beliefs. Those are non-Jews that lived in the land and brought in their weird stuff, and so this is kind of the foundation. It's not kind of, it is the foundation where centuries later, that resentment would be there between true Jews with mixed people that are partially Jew, partially Gentile, and have weird religious system, partially biblical, partially not. Thus the resentment against Samaritans. That was the beginning of what we just read. Now, chapter 18, we pick up Hezekiah. We're back in the south with Jerusalem. Samaria's done. The siege for three years, it's over. But now Jerusalem the city of the king. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. So he had a pretty good run, you know, 25, 54. You ever notice, I'm sure you've noticed how a lot of these kings just had short-lit lives. They died in their 40s or 30s or 20s. But he's 54, which I'm 61, so I'm long gone on that one already. And you people that think you're young when you're 40 realize 54 is, there it is, that's his timeline. So he reigned in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Neshuzatan, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went. He rebelled against the king of Assyria, did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from the watchtower to the fortified city. Wow. (laughs) We've been waiting like two books to get to someone like this, right? You know, in every king that we've read about, you never read this. What a resume, Hezekiah. What an amazing king. And it's nice that he reigned 29 years. See, we've had kings that are good politically and fairly moral, like Jehoshaphat and even Uzziah, who went in the temple and got the leprosy that we just studied last week. We had some good kings. There were some good kings in there, for sure. Asa was a... There were kings in the south who were good kind of God-fearing in a good way kings who were really capable politically to govern God's people. But we haven't seen this kind of king. This kind of king who is is God first, the kingdom first, spiritual things first. He's like all in. In fact, the verse says that, because we've been reading about these Judah kings, every single one it says, oh, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not like his father David. Like, it's almost become like this cadence where he's like, oh, here we go again. He was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not like his father David. It was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not like his father David. And all of a sudden, whoa, we just break the cadence or the, the rhythm here because randomly, here comes this guy, Hezekiah, 
whose dad was Ahaz, the really bad king that we focus on for topically Saturday night and last week uh, verse by verse. His dad was the worst. His dad's the one that tore down the way to the upper gate. Remember? He's that guy. His dad was the one who replaced God's altar with the Syrian altar. That guy. He's the one that broke down all the things that Solomon built. That guy. That's his dad. Which just goes to show whatever anyone did before us doesn't, doesn't force us to be that in our life. There's a self-determination. and We all make choices. And his dad made bad choices. And Hezekiah made good choices. Now we talked about Isaiah the prophet on Saturday night. That Isaiah the prophet, in verse 1 of Isaiah, it says, Isaiah the prophet, that he lived and prophesied during the time of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So his ministry touched those four. Uzziah was 52 years. Uh, Jotham and Ahaz were 16 years each, so that's 32 years. And then now Hezekiah, 29. So obviously Isaiah was born sometime during the reign of Uzziah. And lived during that time. And then he saw all of Jotham. And he saw all of Ahaz's reign. And now here he is at the time of Hezekiah. Isaiah will come into the text next week. We'll get to, Isaiah will be in this text. next. The, the great prophet Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. He'll be in this text next week. So what a joy for Isaiah the prophet. That we saw from the book of Isaiah Saturday night. That he prophesied. It was to Ahaz that God said, put me to the test and I'll give you a sign. And he's like, I don't test the Lord. Because Hezekiah's dad was not a man of faith. And that's when the promise of the virgin birth was given. We saw that back in chapter 7 of the book of Isaiah. And so now we say, how does Hezekiah become this type of guy that's all in with the Lord when his dad was all against the Lord? Well, most likely, the influence of Isaiah would have been profound in his life. Isaiah was... That prophet. Isaiah was the Billy Graham of his timeline. He was that guy. Isaiah was the prophet giving the oracles. In fact, the book of Isaiah has many prophecies that run parallel to the historical record of what we're reading about. So he was speaking into their lives and due to the literal historical events they were going through in the book of Isaiah. And really to understand the book of Isaiah, it's helpful to know Kings, Second Kings, because these things run parallel. The story we're going to read next week with Hezekiah and Isaiah. It's in Chronicles, and it's in the book of Isaiah. It's in three different books of the Bible. They, they go together. So Hezekiah, at age 25, he becomes the king, and he's, re- he's ready for the moment. Like, he prepared himself for this moment. He's prepared for this moment. And the moment he's the king, when his dad is up into eternity, he just, he, he gets after it for everything spiritual. And again, grandfather Jotham had built the upper gate in front of the whole nation to say, I have, a, I have a pathway to the Lord and I depend upon the Lord. That's what his grandfather Jotham did. But his dad, Ahaz, was the worst. And for 16 years, his dad destroyed all that stuff. And here he is and he does, he just, it just shows at any given time in our own lives, at the person we look at in the mirror, any given time, we can go all in. We don't have to accept the dumbing down of a culture, the dumbing down of church leadership, or the dumbing down of our parents, or the dumbing down of our professors. We don't have to, we don't have to accept. If we choose to see a brighter day through faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to see a brighter day through faith in Jesus Christ. And if we choose to believe the kingdom is expanding, the kingdom is expanding. 
what God is going to do in and through our lives as an individual on planet Earth in the name of Jesus Christ for any true disciple is never limited by the exterior. It's limited by what's between our, our ears and what we perceive of the Lord, our value with the Lord, our calling from the Lord, and what we're willing to do with the Lord. And Hezekiah proves it. He is all in. His heart space, his head space, he's all in. Like, he's not waiting for the the weather to be right or the tide to be right or the wind to be right to do something good. He's not making excuses like tomorrow, tomorrow. He got up. He's the king. He goes after everything. There's eight things in here in his, this summary of his life, his uh, bio, his profile, if we will, his Wikipedia. There's eight things here that he did. They're just incredible. He did what was right. But then the number two is the most important of them all is where it says he did. He was all in. He was all in. He could have said, no, you know, the Philistines are rising up. I don't, I don't have time for the Philistines. Oh, the Assyrians are so powerful. Who has the guts to do anything? The Assyrians, because remember, the Assyrians threatened his dad and told him, tear down the upper gate, right? Remember that? Man, the fear of man's a snare. And Hezekiah just got, he got on it. He, he removed the high places. He tore this down. He trusted in the Lord God. Like none of the kings that were ever before him. He's the new standard. And it wasn't a time that was favorable to be a new standard from a geopolitical atmosphere. A a declining empire, a global recession, any excuse you wanted, he had them all to do nothing and just dumb himself down in his faith with God. But instead, it's like he elevated everything and Josiah will do the same thing because it's always the right time to do the right thing. We should never make our call from the Lord subject to what evil men and evil women are doing around us and threatening us with or trying to do, do against us. Hey, what we should accept is responsibility for what we've been given and what we can do to advance the kingdom with it. And in his case, he had a lot of opportunity. So right away, I'm going to tear this down. I'm going to tear that down. And those things have been around here since Solomon stepped into eternity. And I'm tearing there. No one is... No one's committed infanticide in Jerusalem when I'm the king. Because all lives matter. That's not going to happen. And this silly snake thing we've been worshiping for 600 years and burning incense to, and I don't care if Moses built it or not, we're tearing it down. Because whatever it was 600 years ago, it is not today, and it's got to go. It's cursed. It's got to go. You know how much guts it takes to grab the bronze snake that Moses held up in the wilderness that Jesus talks about in John chapter 3? As Moses lifted up the serpent, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up. Like, you had to look at that serpent to be healed from the viper bites during the wilderness wandering. Like, that thing is, like, iconic. Like, literally, iconic. It's the serpent. It's like, dude, there's a serpent. Everyone's like, ooh, burn incense, Moses, Moses. 600 years ago. Hezekiah's like, wham, wham, wham. Faith is the southern things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. There's no faith involved in worshiping this bronze serpent. That was then. This is now. We need faith for today. That's a long time ago. Is we need now. And I'm going to show you how we do it when we're all in for the Lord. We're going to tear these things down outwardly because they have no place inwardly. And by the way, the Philistines, we're going to thump those guys because they have no business in our territory. And the Assyrians... Can we just tell him, no, that's not, no, no. We've seen what he did to Hosea, and he's not doing that here. It's not happening. So all in. See, he's all in, 
And the next three chapters, the next two chapters, Hezekiah is everyone else is all in too. That's the beauty of when you're all in is it inspires people around you to be all in as well. When one person charges a giant, it's more likely that other people run in behind them as well. Leadership, you lead from the front. Oh, his opportunity was there and he just, he seized it. Body of Christ, worship generation. We must seize our opportunities in 2023 that the Lord is presenting to us. We can't change the world. We can't change the whole world, but we can definitely change and impact the world that's entrusted to us. And that's what we're called to do. Because we all have a purpose and we all have a stewardship. And it's right in front of us tomorrow morning on January 11th. They'll be right there for you to wake up and get after it. It might be building this up. It might be inspiring this way, trusting the Lord that way, or tearing this thing down. But you got to do what you got to do. And only you can do it for you and your call on your life. And only I can do it for the call on my life. Just love Hezekiah. There's eight things in there. But once, once you're all in, <laughs> once, once you have like something like you have a, a list that says all in with the Lord, there's a whole bunch of bullet points that will come after that that are good. You know, like all the vision, all the goals, all the ideas, your, your, your mind, your total being, your soul, who you are, it'll all just be, it'll be firing on all cylinders for the king. Once the heart is all in and the headspace is all in, you're, you're just, it's going to be vision and, and the, the plan of action, the next thing, the most important thing, plan of, you know, find a way. It's going to be everything. It's going to be all there. Once the mind and the heart and the soul is all in with the Lord, it's just heaven poured out on you with the vision and the power, the protection. In fact, what does it say? If you're up for it, it says the Lord prospered him wherever he went. You see, that's when you're all in, like, you just, you got the hot hand. You make the right calls. You run the right place. You just, when, you, when you're all in, you're all his. And because you're all his, it's all him. You're not like Hosea saying, like, should I have, you know, get the, you're stripped naked, you got the hook in your nose going, like, I probably shouldn't have trusted in so down in Egypt. That's what you get when you're not all in. But when you're all in, you're like, what? Take care of those Philistines and tell the king of Assyria, like, you know, he's going to come. Of course, he's going to come. We'll, we'll, we'll face that day when we get to it. Today is te- break down the bronze serpent and tear down these altars where they burn babies. That's today. When those guys show up, we'll face that. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Today is the day of the Lord. There are things to do today. Today, these are the things we're doing in the first eight verses today. And we'll worry about those guys when they show up. Because we might step into eternity tomorrow. So today is what we have. And he did quite well today. Verse 9, now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalomanzar, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Then the king of Assyria carried away Israel captive to Assyria, put them in Halah by the har- uh, harbor, and the river Gozon, and the cities of the Medes, again, the Iranians, because they, modern Iran, they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all all Moses and the servants of the Lord had commanded they would neither hear nor do them. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up, so a new king, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Oh, that's going to test your faith, right? 
Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Let me say something about this. This is probably the best decision in a situation that has no good decisions. You follow me? Because we're already seeing with the, the Assyrians is never enough, right? You can't give them enough. But we've already seen what he did to the northern kingdom. But here's something I want you to think about. When you've, had, when you've done good things and you've had a good plan and it still goes wrong. Because according to Isaiah, it's, it's implied that Hezekiah made the same effort to make a deal with Egypt to kind of safety and bolster his rear guard against the Assyrians. And we know he trusted in the Lord. So we trust in the Lord and sometimes like, well, I trust in the Lord, but I'm also going to trust in, you know, this and that and everything else too. But when it all goes wrong and you're, and you're about to, you know, you're, it looks like you're losing. The, these, some of these villages are taken. He's besieging Lake Shish, a crucial city, by the way, for Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And you're like, okay, what's the best option here? Plan A, B, C, or D? D, being taken away naked with a fish hook in your nose, is the worst option. So we want to avoid that one at all costs. We've seen what that one looks like. So you start thinking it through. Well, plan A is let's give him what he wants right now and hope he won't come and just plunder us. But here's the thing. If you're ever in a situation where that's the best you can do is a really bad, a really bad choice is the best you can do, listen closely. When you face that choice, it's a lot easier to face it when you've already given the Lord all you are. When you're all in and you're right with the Lord and you trust in the Lord and you have to make these kind of decisions, it's a lot easier to live at that day than it is for Hosea who never walked with the Lord. That's what I've learned. When you're facing a really bad day and there are no good choices in a bad situation, if you're all in with the Lord, you know the Lord still got your back and you did the best you could. And it's not self-imposed. You didn't shoot yourself in the foot. It's just the way it is. Because it rains on the just and the unjust, and good things happen to bad people, and bad things can happen to good people. Like Job, when it all gets taken from you, you can still say, naked I came, naked I'll return, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken. Let's praise him in a bad day. Like, that's how you want to be. That's how I want to be. That's how the disciple of Jesus wants to be. That when you are all in with the Lord, and the king of Assyria is coming anyways, you want to know that when you, you have to make some kind of a decision, here, take it all. Lord, forgive me, but I, this, is the best, this is the best option we can come up with in the council of our court. We're going to give him everything we got. It's a bad decision, but it's the only decision right now that extends our lives from being taken away naked with fish hooks in our nose. When you have to make that decision, body of Christ, WG, may you make it all in with the Lord. And know that that day is not the result of you 200 years of bad choices coming down upon you as the 19th king of Israel. But may you make that decision on that difficult day knowing that you're the best king Judah's ever had in 200 years. May you make that decision. Those difficult, gut-wrenching decisions. May you make the hardest decision that's the worst option of, it's the best option of all the worst choices. May you make it knowing that you're all in with the Lord because it'll make it easier to make that decision. It's like when you have tithe and you have financial problems. It's a lot easier to face financial problems when you know you tithe and you save. But if you don't tithe and you have financial problems, you have to look in the mirror and say, is it because I'm not trusting the Lord? But when you've sown bountifully and you tithe and you save and you sow and you've got financial problems, like, hey, it's the Lord. 
it's easier to live with those decisions. And that's the lesson of Hezekiah here. He, he made the best decision he could in a bad time. What are you going to do? The time that tries men's souls. Verse 17. Then the king of Assyria sent Tartan, the Rapsuri, and Rabshakeh from Lachish with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. Well, that didn't work, right? Here they come. Like locusts, man. They're coming, and they're bad dudes. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they come up, they went and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which was on the highway at the Fuller's Field. And when they called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household of Shebna, Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, they, they came out to them. And then Rabshakeh said to them, Say not, Hezekiah, thus says the great king and the king of Assyria, what confidence, confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans for power for war, but they are mere words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now look, you trusted in the staff of the broken reed of Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go in his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Oh, that's so sinister. Did you catch that, WG? He's taking the good thing Hezekiah has done and he's twisting it as a bad thing. Oh, it's just like the world, isn't it? It's just like media. To take a good thing and make it a bad thing. It's a... It's this is mental calisthenics. There's a psychological war of words. He's making trusting the Lord look bad. He's making the altars that, that Hezekiah removed, the only king that ever did it, look bad when it's actually good. He's twisting all it because that's what the devil does. He's the father of lies. He takes that which is good and make it look evil and takes that which is evil and make it look good. That's what the devil does. That altar in Jerusalem, oh, that's so sinister. Verse 23, now therefore I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses, huh? And if you're able on your part, put riders on them. How then will you reply, repel, how will you repel one captain, the least of my master's servants, to put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? Because the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. These guys are out of control. Only God can deal with them. Verse 26, then Eliakim, the son of Hilkah, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and spoke, saying to everyone, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand, nor let Hezekiah make you trust the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present and come out to me. And every one of you eat from his own vine, and every one from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink the waters of your own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land that you're like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyard, a land of olive groves and honey, that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered the land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seravim and Hena and Eva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods in the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? <laughs> oh, it's a hard chapter, isn't it? 
It's like watching your favorite football team get hammered on TV, crushed, defeated. It's hard to watch this. This, this is hard to read. I mean, is it hard for you to read this? It's hard for me to read out loud. I do not like pompous, arrogant men showing up to the people of God talking trash and talking smack and having the statistics to back up what they're saying. But, you know, we got to remember God's always playing the long game. We want fast food at 1 o'clock, 12 o'clock in Southern California. But most of the world enjoys their meals for a couple hours, like in Chile and France. And in the real world, a long game is better than a short game. And in the real world, with God's economy, where the clock works equally every single day in the human experience, things have a way of playing out, and God always triumphs. And God always backs the people of faith. And the end intended will always work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So when men and women are filled with their pride and their arrogance against the Lord and taunting people who trust in the Lord, what can you do? There's not much to be gained by getting in a shouting match or a blog-for-blog tit-for-tat with them. There's not really much you can do. If people want to get on TV and blaspheme against the Lord, blaspheme against defending the unborn, and blaspheme against, you know, God's plan for marriage and his design for genders and relationships, if they want to do that, they're going to do it. Ours is the kingdom. And we can't let loud, people actually have the megaphones and do this stuff, loud megaphones outside our front door for Supreme Court justice. It's pro-life. We can't let them stop us from doing what's true, right, just, noble, and praiseworthy in the eyes of the Lord. Aka Clarence Thomas. you got to always do the right thing. And if people want to talk trash and play psychological warfare and try and shout down the truth, that's what they're going to do. But never, ever let them move us from the place of faith and trust and confidence in the Lord. And I'm so glad this chapter doesn't end on verse 45. Because if it ended on verse 45, it'd be like, oh my goodness. It would not... Verse 46 is so much better. So... All this trash talking and all, just all this blasphemy and arrogance against the Lord coming from Assyria. And who can argue with them? The, the stat sheet shows they're right. They just ruled everybody, and God was with them for what they did to the northern kingdom. And so they're, 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 they're mixing the truth of their statistics and twisting the truth against them. At the same time, they are so diabolical and sinister, they're led by the devil. And the Antichrist will be much worse than this. But verse 36 says all we need to know to go home with joy in our hearts and peace in our hearts and faith in our, in our vision. But the people held their peace and answered him not a word. For the, king commands, the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Hilkiah uh, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, their quarter came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. Which makes me think, maybe if we tear our clothes over sin and sorrow, it might protect us from being stripped naked and taken into captivity. I'd much rather tear my clothes out of remorse and sorrow for what's going on than to be stripped naked for being stupid and taking away the hook in my nose. You know, God tells the man and the woman who cares. And God said, if my people humble themselves and cry out, he'll hear them. And that's really what's in, in in our court. And I just love how it says they held their peace. God help us in 2023 to know when to just hold our peace. everyone's got to get the last word in in, on planet Earth in 2023, right? It's just the human nature. Just hold our peace. Trust in the Lord. Know that good things will always work together for good to those who love the Lord. And just know the story's not done yet. Don't let all the naysayers 
discourage you, discourage me, discourage us, for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus and what he has for us. It is so honorable when godly women and godly men can hold their peace in the face of abusive language and taunts in front of them. It's so honorable to just be able to hold your peace and just, even a fool's counterwise when he holds their peace. You can't answer this situation other than in the private life of your prayers, staying steadfast to what was agreed upon by the authorities over you, Hezekiah, what he told the people. They are all unified in this. Hold our peace. And like Moses backed up against the Red Sea, we'll stand back and we'll see salvation of our God in the next chapter. Yes and amen.